Hello, friends, Romans, countrymen. Uh, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Thursday, the 22nd of July, but you're no doubt hearing this sometime in August. No I'm doubt. Alex. Huh? No doubt. No doubt. And d- doubtlessly. <laughs> uh, they, they've lent us their ears. So <laughs> they are listening. <laughs> I don't know why you rolled your eyes, George. That was a good intro. Yeah, I'm, I'm Alex Hockley, uh, if you don't know. I'm here with George Hoare, actually, in his flat, and Philip Cunliffe, also in his, in uh, well, in George's flat. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> oh, yeah, all right. We were, yeah, yeah, that is factually correct. Yep. Um, I, we were thinking about something to talk about at the beginning here, and um, I, I've not been reading the news. I don't know what's been going Why on Why haven't you been world. reading the news, man? Well, You're supposed I, to be a podcaster, a I'm, professional I'm fucking podcaster. I'm on a sort of, like, semi-holiday, like, kind of working, but kind of not, and uh, it's I been, don't know. It, it's it, been it, unseasonably hot. Uh, recently in in britain as in it's been hot the last recourse of english conversation yeah always i like always. talking about the weather of course you I, do. I like i like thinking about the weather and what the weather is doing i wish i knew meteorology so i could kind of be like oh yeah high pressure like a, but it's it's blocked by a kind of spectrum why do you want to be a weatherman <laughs> no i mean you don't I, need to I'm be not, a weatherman i'm not camp to... enough to be a weatherman i think you don't need to be you a weatherman to definitely know which, camp enough to, to know which way the wind blows mm. but why not reading the news alex no, I just, I, I, it's because I get these newsletters, you know, daily, like I get like one from the FT, one from like G0, which is quite good about global politics, uh, and one from El País Brasil, and like, I've just not been reading. Very, very which cosmopolitan. Is, which is, which is <laughs> very international. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to keep up with what's going on in Brasil and Latin America and, and kind of then like global slash England. And the thing is, is that um, this is also why uh, George was horrified earlier to see that I've got like 1,198 unread emails in my inbox, partly I would say a big chunk of those are those newsletters. Some of those from George as well. It was 1,000. George is saying thank you. Yes, nice. Thank you for sending an email. (laughs) I'm having the last word. Okay, two two, two, two points. One, it was 1,188. That number is burnt onto my my Bureaucratic bureaucratic retina and secondly if somebody sends you an email and you reply it's not like oh look this person what 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 uh, the ocd behavior they're so so anal oh my god it's like yeah i'm just saying thank you or just replying (sighs) just communicating like a normal human being i'm still here in case you want to send me send me another email we can we can keep this human connection going anyway touch me what i would uh, add to these newsletters is substacks i like substacks a lot because you don't have to go to the the hassle of like www.ft.com. I mean, that's, that's who's real. got time for that? <laughs> Instead, straight to your inbox. I'm and s- I'm so busy. I can't. I need to wear the same shirt every yeah. day because I can't spend uh, time uh, thinking uh, about also, it. Who's and still, I can't like, type still in typing out www.ft. There is this thing. Yeah, exactly. The Substack thing because you're always pushing these like different Substacks. Yeah, yeah. So particularly, I would say. Sensible Captain Substack. Everyone should should subscribe to that one. Angela Nagel's as well. We've we've talked about that previously. There are loads of other good ones. And they're safety, both they're safety both propaganda. Um, that's, they're that's both very good. The guests we've had on the podcast. Yeah. As well. No, I mean, I, I think it's a you know, I I I like receiving well, you, emails. You, 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 like, you do <laughs> like, clearly. Like, yeah. You like reading things that you already agree with. Yeah. So you're just like, no, this isn't my comfort zone. Yeah, cool. I'm 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 on board with this. Yeah, right on, right on, right on. That, 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 so you just like reading? So oh yeah, I hate all of this. It's all wrong. It's all terrible. <laughs> 
That's like, pretty much the experience. Actually, of my sometimes life, yeah. analysis is useful to read Marxist analysis of stuff because it's you know because it's correct and it helps you understand things. I mean, if you're just reading it to just get annoyed and dunk on some idiot, then yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, the news used to be about learning about uh, objective things that happen in the world, but uh... I prefer I prefer opinions. You know, facts so much the worse for facts. I mean, I, I want I want opinions. I want I want to know what to think, not what's happening. Anyway, so we're here actually to discuss uh, Paulo Gerbaldo's new book, The Great Recall. Actually, we're not going to discuss the book. What we're doing is interviewing him. Uh, you're going to hear me interviewing him in just a little bit. But the interview is about the book. The interview is about his book, the new book, The Great Recoil, which is out in September. So, I talk about that in the interview, so I don't need to preview it anymore. But for those who don't know, uh, Paulo Gerbaldo is a previous guest. He's a friend of the podcast. Uh has blurbed our book, in fact, The End of the End of History, which actually has, uh, you know, it kind of goes quite along the same tracks, I suppose, as as The Great Recoil. It's a, it's, and, it's, it's yeah, a book his, about what comes after neoliberalism. His book on digital parties was, I think, it was very clarifying um, for the book um, in terms of the way in which the new kind of parties, Five Star and all that, their, um, the digital kind of plebiscitarian model they have. Refer internal referendums and all that. It was very insightful and useful for us, I think, and helped to clarify aspects of um, the way in which kind of populist politics works. Yeah, yeah, probably worth checking out, listener, actually, if you haven't listened to that one. I mean, I think it's number, I can't remember, 65. I, I'll, we'll put it in the show notes, actually. Well, worth checking out because um, that was a really sharp book, which we really enjoyed, uh, which seized onto something kind of new happening with these kind of new forms of populist parties, which now feels a bit old hat. I mean, our book talks about the death of left populism. We've talked about it uh, endlessly on this podcast. And uh, nevertheless, those forms of kind of circumventing the void between, you know, political leaderships and parties and ordinary citizens uh, are, you know, they use technical means to mm. do that, to bridge that gap. Circ um, circumventing which... the old the old reach around. I mean, so the idea in, in the, that's an Arrested Development line, I believe. The um, idea in the book is that you have the, the hyper leader and, and the base of the party, um, of these digital parties, which are disintermediated. So basically, you kind of short circuit all of the previous, like, um, party apparatuses, and you have this feeding like or branches this... cadres like various levels of hierarchy all the rest yeah, of it you don't need you don't need these um apparatchiks you don't need these these functionaries instead you just have much purer quicker better more democratic more cooler uh, except more trendy uh technologically technological uh, um way to uh link the members of a party to the leader and it paradoxically and it the recapitulates the void in the inside of the party yeah so um, and it will never and, i mean and it's and it's in i don't think paulo has this in in the book but it's you know that's one of the the kind of critiques of um yeah, and five star having been reabsorbed into um into kind of uh, mainstream italian party politics in um, coalition with the democratic party governing democratic party um, I think vindicates, you know, vindicates um, Paolo's uh, perspective about the limits of these populist parties as vehicles. I, I, vehicles I bloody, I bloody love uh, Cinque Stelle Five Star. I, I think it's just, it's the purest populist party yeah. in Europe. It's a fascinating thing to study. And it's also so telling and also so foreseeable that it's ended up yeah. completely folded into the kind of mainstream establishment because yeah. it was so catch-all and so just anti-political that, yeah. as as we've always argued, anti-politics yeah. leads, uh, leads back to technocracy. Yeah, I think that's right. Or to dictatorship alternatively. That's the other road mm. that it kind of takes. But. Yeah, I think it's... it's 
you know that that idea of political authority i mean i've made this point before that's that's what's really what's really lacking and what is is really important um but yeah we, why don't we why don't we call paolo up now and uh <laughs> the, the artifice of uh, here I, I spoke to paolo a couple of days ago but um, yeah but you need to have like the ringing we're calling paolo hi paolo but you're actually you you did it with him live in his his flat right so you you know we don't actually need to ring him up anyway the listeners will get this when they actually hear it anyway that's enough from us listen to to uh well to me talking to paolo All right, everyone, I'm here with Paolo Gerbaldo uh, in his flat in London. Uh, thank you for having me, um, and thank you for coming on. Welcome, Alex. So, um, how's it going? You're um, obviously Italian, and it's a great time to be Italian, um, because uh, you have neo-fascists or, or post-fascists leading the polls in Italy. You have, uh, r- followed by right-wing populists and followed by uh, centrist neoliberals. No, no, that's not the, re- that's not the reason to- that it's good to be Italian. Uh, the, the reason it's good to be Italian is because... Um, Italy had a really great pandemic, and uh, no one died, and there were no civil liberties. Oh no, that's not the other. That's not the reason it's good to be Italian. I'm trying to remind me, what's the reason that it's good to be Italian now? It has come to Rome, man. Yeah, <laughs> eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, that and and more importantly, uh, winners of Eurovision, which is of course a, a, an unprecedented double. Yes, now there's many articles that that are talking about the resurgence of Italy. I mean, the New York Times there was recently an article that Italy is back, and it is because of Mario Draghi, obviously, right? I mean, oh yeah, yeah, super, super <laughs> Mario, who uh, yeah, technocrat in chief. Um, yeah. So what we're actually here to do is talk about your book. This is actually the second time you've been on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about your excellent book. Uh, the digital party before, and this was now maybe about what is it, two thousand eighteen or something like that. Um, yeah, before the pandemic, so it feels uh, it feels like another decade. It, it is it is another decade, ago, yeah. and it was also kind of uh, peak peak populism period, I think, mm. uh, in a way that maybe doesn't really feel like that now, right? Um, and your book is about that. So your book is called "The Great Recoil: Politics After Populism and Pandemic," which is out soon on Verso. September. September, excellent. Um, and it's a book that you were just telling me before this that you started writing in 2017, mm. which feels also like a very different time. It was precisely when like left populism was on the up. Um, mm. It seemed like something quite promising. And at the same time, the pandemic was something which only experts were warning about mm. while politicians paid it no heed uh, <laughs> and has actually come home to roost. Um, so what was the process of writing it like, actually, given that you started a long time ago and lots of things have happened since then? Yes, I think writing theory, po- uh, political theory books these days is very difficult <laughs> as the terrain is constantly changing and it feels sometimes you really cannot trying to grasp something, some figures in, in the darkness. Uh, but at the same time, uh, somehow some of the themes that were already there uh, embryonically in the late 2010s ended up resonating with what has happened after now with the pandemic. Because, I mean, I say my, my chief concern in writing this book was that I was dissatisfied with the theory of populism. It seemed to me as if uh, it had lost its explanatory uh, ability in a time when so many things had become populist. Yeah. At a time when all politics is populist somehow. Yeah. You know, populism seemed to make less and less sense. Populism is something that uh, something that you don't like, especially if you're like a liberal centrist. Populism mm-hmm. just means anything that you don't like, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, but also for the people that, that like populism, uh, as I do, 
you were realizing that as everything was becoming populist, the left was considered populist, the right was considered populist, even some liberal centrists were described as populist, such as Macron, having some kind of populist rhetoric, you start wondering, so what's the entire point talking about populism now? Indeed, the 2010s were the time when politics became populist, but now we are in a different stage. Uh, somehow we are in a different stage of the decline of neoliberalism of which the populist wave was part and a point where neoliberalism eventually seems to be giving way to something different. Yeah. This is uh, the central thesis in the book. Yeah, so exactly that. I was going to come on to that. I mean, the, the basic idea of the book is what happens after neoliberalism. And you characterize re- and many times throughout the book about a turning inwards that's happening mm-hmm. after... Uh, after neoliberalism, and that's a kind of recoil, as in the title, to kind of flinch back um, mm. from what what is from this sort of openness or globalization that happened before. One way you try to capture this uh, is through terms which I hadn't really heard before: endopolitics versus exopolitics. So maybe mm. you could explain what those terms mean and how they refer to the changes that are happening now, moving beyond neoliberalism. Yes, what I wanted to do with, with the book was, in a way, reading. On the one hand, the theory of neoliberalism at a time of its decline, a bit like, uh, uh, right, I mean, we know that all ideologies uh, become clearer at the time of their decline. So I read a lot of uh, founding texts of neoliberalism. It was a very hard thing to do, but <laughs> I, I, I did it and I learned quite a lot from that. And what, what struck me doing that was how much there was a, a very profound leitmotiv to all these texts, which was this idea basically of uh, slamming open the cage of the state and any social unit, so to unleash the genius of uh, entrepreneurialism, finance, uh, and economic spontaneity. And all the talking there was about externalization. Mm. That's where the idea of exopolitics come from. So to me, really, topologically, the push of neoliberalism was about going out, going out in the open, the imaginary of globalization as a new wild west. Now even entrepreneurs like going to space, they always going to want to go farther and farther uh, so that the global market can find ever uh, more countries or spaces to occupy. But as we know from, from Polanyi, uh, cycles of capitalism ultimately crash against the shoals of, of reality, against the limits uh, of the environment, against the limits of the economy, against the limits of, of politics, and then tend to uh, wash back. Yeah, and so like just, just for listeners, the Polanyi's idea, um, I guess very briefly, is a sort of double movement where you have the um, deterritorialization or the kind of openness of, of the of the market, which then brings forth a sort of natural and spontaneous counter reaction towards protection. I guess is that mm-hmm. how you would uh... completely, completely. That's uh, description of Polanyi that obviously referred to the thirties, to the nineteen thirties, uh, to the crisis in nineteen twenty nine, the Wall Street crash, and how different countries experienced this trajectory in different ways. So either the social democratic or liberal progressive response, which was always Lee Roosevelt and the New Deal, the fascist and the Nazi response in Europe or the Bolshevik response. They were all very different responses, but they all responded to the same crisis, to the same dilemma, which was how do we protect society from capital, from the rapacity of capitalism, which precisely at the time of crisis is becoming self-destructive. It's yeah. called self-cannibalizing. 
And, you know, inwardness, in interiority, uh, in uh, navel-gazing, I think some people associate these words mm. with kind of navel-gazing or something negative. Yeah, right? or somehow narcissistic or something. Yeah, but in fact, it's uh, not always the case. In a sense, it's quite normal, I think, in common sense, in folk tales, right, that in moments of crisis or difficulty, people have for a period to internally reorganize or societies yeah. need to uh, reorganize internally and precisely because of this shock of of the fact that externalization has produced exposure it produced a sense of being out in the open yeah uh, there is now a natural instinct to find in a way a new equilibrium or uh, some degree of shelter yeah vis-a-vis uh, -vis a space that otherwise feels like uh, uh, extremely threatening uh, I mean, these metaphors are really interesting, and we're going to talk about some other ones, I guess, that appear throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Some involve animals, so for listeners, mm -hmm. uh, that's always fun, animals coming up. Uh, but also, uh, I, I wanted to maybe just throw in some other kind of metaphors that are used. I mean, the openest closed one, which is probably kind of stupid one that's often used, you know, mm -hmm. and, and one which is... Um, uh, really beneficial to those who are in favor of openness because who wants to be closed right it doesn't sound uh it doesn't sound that that uh that endearing um but also in this podcast before we talked with anton jaeger about where he was talking about we talked once about public and private phases of capitalism and some that kind of maps on in a way to neoliberalism as a private phase and then maybe we move to a more public phase now uh whereas you know the social democratic period after the second world war was a public phase and so on um mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting just maybe, I guess, to bear these uh, these sort of notions in mind uh, as, as we go forward. Because there's another one I'm going to bring up now is that we're moving, I guess you make the argument in the book, to an agoraphobic world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's fear of fear of open spaces. Um, and that's another way you kind of try to try to capture through a kind of in a metaphorical sense, uh, big changes, changes which relate both to economic management, uh, all the way to culture, to kind of forms of politics, right? Um, so maybe you could tell us what, what is agora, what is our agoraphobic moment? Agoraphobia is a form of anxiety, right? It's one of many forms of anxiety. We know that we live in an age of anxiety. Anxiety fundamentally is a condition of uh, uh, that is correlated with a sense of lack of control. Is when a, a person uh, cannot uh, doesn't feel able to determine the course of events. And it's somehow accelerated, uh, the thought is accelerating, someone is worrying so much about the past, what may happen in the future, that he's not able anymore to control the present, to have a sense of direction, a sense of steering the course of events. Now, this term is also, I think, a good metaphor to express many of the anxieties that, that pervade our era, because I think that much of our politics has to be understood in light of those social anxieties. The social anxieties have to do uh, with uh, the sense of being in a space that is traversed by very powerful flows of money, of commodities, of services, of people that are out, often out of collective control. Yeah. People cannot determine them. Yeah. This is an anxiety that is very general. I mean, on the right, it would be obviously the inability to control the flow of people, migration. On the left, instead, is the inability to control flows of, of money, flows of commodity, flows of capital. Like yeah, capital. I guess there's few sections of society that feel totally at home in this world. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the most elite sections, people who are, um, especially yeah, effectively the global elite, financial elite, who are happy with mm -hmm. this openness and can benefit from it. Um, but for most other people, 
across the political spectrum, you feel exposed. Yeah, right? people who are at the receiving end of these flows. And, and to give an example that to show that it is not just necessarily a kind of reactionary anxiety, I mean, let's give the example, for example, of Barcelona and protests against tourism. Before the pandemic, uh, Barcelona, as many other cities uh, that were very attractive to tourists, have been literally kind of flooded by uh, hundreds of thousands of tourists, uh, creating problems for uh, local inhabitants, mm. people who are actually living in a place. And uh, these are in terms of rents going up because of Airbnb. It's in terms of not being able to use your parks or services anymore because they're flooded with other people that sometimes get really drunk and noisy and create all sorts of nuisances. And therefore, you have these campaigns that are basically, I want to save my neighborhood, right? Also here in London, for example, there is a campaign to save the Freely Road market yeah. from uh, gentrification, regeneration. And I think this uh, uh, instinct of defense actually is really important. I mean, in the desire of inhabitants, yeah. to use the, the term of, uh, of Karl Polanyi, vis-a-vis what is presented as innovation, uh, is actually something that is really important for uh, developing uh, an alternative. I mean, sometimes it is taken as a kind of conservative struggle or sometimes associated with nimbism. Yeah. Um, but there are very important reasons why people are not happy with those things happening to them yeah. in the place where they live. Well, and I guess we'll get on to uh, whether that move to protect, mm. um, to, to, to exert some sort of control is necessarily parochial or if it can have, be a, a sort of grander sort of politics and political response. Um, but before that, we, I guess we should talk about populism um, because you said it, said it out quite uh, clearly at the beginning, saying populism is the dialectical negation of neoliberalism. Um, but for me, I, th- I find that populism is precisely an undialectical mm-hmm. <laughs> negation, that it's, it's merely its mirror image mm-hmm. or the shadow of neoliberal managerialism, that in some ways it's unable to get beyond anything. And that's something that you say later on in the book, that um, that populism is equals anti-neoliberalism, and this is precisely its limit, that it never goes beyond countercultural contestation. Mm-hmm. So how do you see populism? Do you see it as something that's able to kind of transgress or, or, or move beyond, uh, transcend what we have now? Or is it merely just the kind of spontaneous, automatic reaction to neoliberalism and, and in some ways reflection, negative reflection of neoliberal managerialism's own image, right? So the managerial say, let's be open. Populists mm. say, let's be closed. Mm. Uh, managerial say, you know, let's uh, let's submit things to the market. No, let's not. Let's, uh, and so on. Completely. I think in 21st century populism, somehow has been the doppelganger of like the, the twin uh, brother of neoliberalism or the inver- inverted brother of neoliberalism in some respects, because they have so many similarities in that they both reflect the extreme individualization right, uh, that neoliberalism has created and that populism is exploiting. Because with anything in society, if you push certain things to the extreme, in the case of neoliberalism, competition, individualism, you're always bound to have some negative feedback responses. We know this from the theory of complex systems. So what happens is that over the course of neoliberalism, typically you have some communitarian waves that are precisely there uh, to uh, balance out uh, the uh, centrifugal tendencies of of neoliberalism, this extreme individualism that creates uh, scores of victims. Yeah. 
that then want to be reintegrated in the system, want to be reintegrated in, in society. Because, I mean, we know that from anthropology, from biology, from sociology, uh, in the, in human beings as any animals, I mean, they, they, they are not really individuals. They live in communities, they live in groups, they live in bands. Uh, capitalist modernization has produced individual atomization. Over the course of the social democratic era, unions and parties managed to uh, find a new settlement, also in the terms of creating a new sense of community, making people feel at home somewhere in their neighborhood, in their workplace, in their community. But then, obviously, with neoliberalism, that sense of community is eroded. And, and this is now why we find ourselves now in, in this situation. So one thing that's emerging, um, and this is something that, uh, I mean, regular listeners to the podcast will know that we've talked about this as well, and this is kind of where the contemporary thinking is going. Um, you put it quite clearly, and it's actually a great way that you go about explaining what this synthesis looks like mm. that this uh, that after the populist decade effectively what you have is a protective statism mm. uh, protective statism which is a meta ideological horizon um, and by this you mean it's something that infuses the entire political space that everybody left right and center will have to adapt to this uh, protective statism so maybe you could explain mm. what this synthesis is and maybe give us some examples of some who you feel are like characteristic politicians mm. so people can put some meat on those bones. Yes. I mean, uh, first and foremost, statism is an ideology that sees the state as uh, the motor of society, as a fundamental infrastructure, which is in a way uh, the inversion of many of neoliberalism's uh, viewpoint in a sense that neoliberalism was strongly anti-statist. Right. One of the main polemical targets of neoliberalism was always the state, the nanny state, uh, uh, the gravy train, uh, yeah. red tape, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, that is not the case anymore. Actually, it has not been the case for a long time. I mean, already 2008 demonstrated that the market cannot exist without the state. That The state has to intervene to bail out companies. That companies exist as long as the state wants them to be there and wants to save them. And with the pandemic, it has become ever more evident. Uh, now, as at any moment of ideological transition, things are quite muddled. They're not as clear in the transition phase as, as one uh, may want them to be. But for example, the huge stimulus programs over $5 trillion already approved in the US under Biden. Uh, the recovery plan in Europe, though much smaller, point to a different horizon where some pillars of neoliberalism, specifically uh, monetary conservatism, uh, fiscal conservatism, and free trade are falling. Others are not. I mean, like tax low taxation, social Darwinism, the yeah. right, right still retain them. But other ones that had to do precisely with the role of the state in the economy, both domestic and international, are actually giving way to a new statist creed. And I mean, neo-statism as something that is meta-ideological infuses the entire political spectrum. So on the, on the left, it will be this return to the welfare state, this return to public services uh, by the populist left. On the right, it is law and order, it is uh, border walls, it is a return of the repressive state, which wasn't quite there in the center right of the, of the neoliberal era, at least not in such strong forms. But then you have Biden, Bidenomics, yeah. right? There is also kind of a liberal response to that, uh, saying let's use the activist state yeah. to determine how capitalism operates. 
to change how the market works. Yeah, I mean, often I've made this argument, uh, you know, before and people always respond like, no, but look, they, you know, Trump passed tax cuts or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the the Dutch are still like hardcore Austrians in Europe and so on. Um, but of course, I think, as you say, it's a muddled situation in which there's still a, a legacy of neoliberalism of, you know, you had effectively 40 years of that form mm-hmm. of politics and it'll take a while for it to recede entirely. But I think it's quite clear that... Um, the political authority of neoliberalism is certainly over, even if there still remain neoliberal measures and legacies here and there. Um, one thing, I guess, is what has forced this synthesis? Mm-hmm. Because um, what has forced the establishment to change? What has forced someone like Joe Biden to mm-hmm. pursue policies which are effectively a continuation of Trumpism, um, but probably a, a bit more effectively done? Um, less circus, um, but it's effectively, you know, Trumpism in, in a... Uh, Trumpism in a suit. Trump wore a suit, but Trumpism, you know, I guess Trumpism without the Twitter. That's a way to say it, right? Um, What really forced that change? Because there's a tendency on the left to exaggerate its own contribution, say, oh, we forced them to to adopt our policies or alternatively to scream, how dare they? How dare these centrists or right wingers steal our, our policies? And, you know, the real populist threat seemed to come more from with certain exceptions, perhaps, mm. more from the populist right than the populist left. So, I mean, mm-hmm. do you see these adaptations from the even traditional establishment politicians like Joe Biden, like mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, as uh, as products of, of what? I mean, who's, what's forced that change? I mean, I wouldn't underplay the contribution of socialists uh, to this change of, of discourse in a sense that uh, I think Biden is uh, um, has realized that I mean, young people in the U.S. are becoming ever more anti-capitalist. Those people are now young, so they are just a section of the electorate. But any politician who is uh, uh, a bit more long-sighted uh, knows that these people will be the voters of the future. And uh, I think there's quite solid evidence demonstrating that for socioeconomic reasons, people, young people are increasingly concerned yeah. about the capitalism that is not working. But I agree with you that the more important reasons that have led Joe Biden to what I think is a significant change in policy. I mean, one I didn't expect, for example. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, it goes against what he has done over his like 30, 40 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, have to do A, with Trumpism, precisely, with fear. It has to do with fear. In the book, I said it is an age of fear more than desire. Yeah. And also, so politics is defined by fear. A, fear of Trumpism. They don't want Trump to come back, nor a Trump lookalike. And this is the liberal establishment as well. I mean, the centrist in the Democratic Party. Because 6th of January uh, 2021, Perhaps we don't realize it outside of the U.S., but people in the U.S. know very well that it was a trauma. It was a very big shock for many people, including for many people at the top. Yeah, They don't want that to happen again, and they are ready to make some concessions to avoid that coming back. Yeah, These concessions are fundamentally giving a bit more protection or right wage rises to uh, workers that are uh, targeted by Trumpism. Second fear, fear of China. Yeah. This is, again, I mean, this is something that Brian Dees explains very well in his interview with Ezra Klein of the New York Times. And Brian Dees says it very well. We have fundamentally realized that the U.S. is increasingly in a weak strategic position vis-a-vis China. 
we have realized, I mean, like, it is a bit laughable because everyone realized that, but it's good that also liberal centrists come to realize that, that China is a state capitalism, right? Yeah. With the state controlling a large section of the economy. Uh, and we have realized that China has, that it is a system that it is working for them. I mean, they have 30,000 kilometers of high-speed trains. The U.S. doesn't even have one. Yeah. Right? So we cannot go on pretending that we are in a free market when our main competitor for, for the U.S. is China. And, and we cannot go on pretending that China is a complete disaster when actually they're, they're model. So in a way, what is in a way alluding to to, though he's not saying that explicitly, is that the U.S. has to become a bit more like China. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because in our recent uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club, we discussed Michael Lind's book, The, mm-hmm. the New Class War, uh, and he's quite explicit. I mean, he's obviously, uh, for, for listeners who uh, haven't read the book and, and uh, maybe aren't subscribers and haven't had a chance to listen to that, uh, he's a conservative, a conservative uh, communitarian, I guess, um, who would fit very well, I think, with... Uh, as a model of what you're talking about in terms of a, a turn statism. towards statism. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he makes the argument that elites have never been disciplined effectively by uh, by revolution, by the left, that it's always been conflict, the great power conflict that's actually done it, which, of course, is a conservative interpretation of history. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, not completely incorrect in that, in the fact that, you know, the destruction of old elites in the, in the First and Second World War mm-hmm. uh, did, breed a, did breed a change. But he's quite explicit that basically conflict with China almost needs to happen for the U.S. to carry out um, a complete reorganization of capitalism and have mm-hmm. kind of more pro-social, pro-worker reforms. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the most infamous lines of Hegel is when he basically justifies war because it gives uh, it is the highest moment of the nation because it strengthens its identity, its identity, and obviously it's uh, not something that anyone would like to happen. Uh, but it is true that international pressure sometimes uh, leads uh, uh, elites uh, to realize that certain positions are untenable. I mean, obviously, the most uh, egregious example of that is uh, the Soviet Union and the way in which the threat of the Soviet Union uh, contributed to the social democratic uh, settlement yeah. in, in the West for a long time because they knew that workers were beginning to sympathize for that model. Um so yes, I think that that is perhaps the most uh, actually the most important fear of, of, of the US. I mean the US is realized as someone was saying, once upon a time people were going to the US to see the future. now they're yeah. going to the US to see the past. yeah, right And that is not good for the country of the for, for a country that um, thought of itself as the country of the future. Yeah, of yeah. course you know that Italy is the, is the real sure. country of the future or and Brazil, Brazil and Brazil it's yeah <laughs> It's um, the same thing. Okay. Yeah yeah. Um, so I wanted to like dig into a couple of the th- big themes that form the middle chapters of the book, which are sovereignty, protection, and control, some, mm-hmm. some of which we've already mentioned. Um, you argue that uh, protection and control are sovereignty's ends and means. That is to say, uh, you know, control is a means to protection. And I wanted to kind of uh, take you up on some of these. 
Um, I mean, sovereignty is something that we've discussed endlessly on on mm-hmm. Alpha Bunga Bunga, so probably don't need to uh, dwell too long on it. But just I guess one little thing about it, mm-hmm. uh, because you have a reading of Hobbes in it and pre- present mm-hmm. sovereignty both as territorial sovereignty, state sovereignty, but also popular sovereignty. And uh, I guess yeah, for listeners they'll be familiar, well familiar with uh, mm-hmm. with at least our discussions of it. Uh, if you are a regular listener. Um, but uh, one important point, of course, is that Hobbes allows a breach for rebellion. So it's not mm-hmm. just merely the sovereign comes in, provides protection, and then you must obey in return, but that there is a social contract that if the sovereign mm. is no longer able to provide protection, then there is a sort of right to rebel. You've introduced that, and but you don't answer the question that I guess that hangs over it. Has that, do you think that's been breached? I mean, do you think that the sovereign's uh, supposed uh, well social contract to the people has been has been broken by not providing protection I think that is the case in a sense the neoliberal contract for sure uh, that promised people certain things right he promised that they would get better he promised me uh, sort of meritocrat- meritocratic vision of society exactly or... I mean I'd be reading for example some of the declarations in the G8 of Genoa right? exactly 20 years yeah. ago uh, you see, oh, it's twenty of, years, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was seeing the the rhetoric there, and it was still this rhetoric of, uh, uh, yeah, we need to continue expanding because it's also good for poverty. Actually, globalization is the best way to fight poverty. Yeah, and much of that discourse has, has completely failed, and, and people already realized that after two thousand and eight. Um, but then, with I mean, sovereignty for me was. It's something that the study uh, been interesting for me because I realized that it was in a way the content of populism. That in a way, if you wanted, to, if one wanted to understand what populism was actually about, yeah, and if one wanted to find the content of populism, the way to go was sovereignty because there seemed to be this word popping up everywhere where populism appeared. You know, the two things somehow were were, yeah. were, were entangled. Were, yeah, you know, were, but both discursively like, yeah. as well as materially, in the, in the mm-hmm. sense that. The thing that new, the thing that populism opposes is mm. precisely an anti-sovereignty mm-hmm. trend in 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 politics. I mean, in, in the mm. organization of society. Completely, but at the same time, I also realized that sovereignty, the sovereignty people were talking about in so many different occasions, places, food sovereignty of via campesina, energy sovereignty of ecological activists, food sovereignty of anarchists, or national sovereignty. Yeah. That it was not reducible to the juridical notion of sovereignty, right? Nor to territorial sovereignty, right? As normally understood in political science yeah. and international relations. It was more of an all encompassing term, basically to speak about power, if you want to put it like that. I mean, political power, which by its nature is always localized, uh, because the demos has a topos. I mean, uh, political institutions are defined by place, right? By territory. Uh, but then taking very different meanings because one, territorial sovereignty and popular sovereignty are actually quite different understandings of what sovereignty is about. Yeah. Uh, the left is the force that has politicized sovereignty in history, as Melanchon famously uh, said. But the kind of sovereignty that the left has politicized what was popular sovereignty, the power of the people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very good. Um, I guess we have to move on to pr- uh, protection and control mm-hmm. because those are, uh, in a way, like the way that you put it, in some ways, the keys to understanding mm-hmm. or unpacking sovereignty. Um, protection sounds like, to me, mm-hmm. when as a political operative word, 
as uh, something that puts citizens in a passive position, as recipients mm-hmm. of protection. Um, mm-hmm. But you point out, I think, you argue that it's not just defensive, but th- that protection is produ- productive of community, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. And maybe you could explain exactly how that works. I mean, in a way, that speaks to a larger theme of social theory, uh, the asymmetry of society, in a sense that uh, in any relationship, in any interaction, uh, there's always a kind of 80-20 kind of uh, ratio. And in this case, people are defending more than they are attacking in, in any way. So defense... In the broadest sense of defense of community, defense against enemies, defense against natural threats. I mean, let's think of what is happening now in Belgium, in Germany. Is These are fun- floods yeah. for, for, for yeah. listeners who, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, these huge floods uh, that are, in a way, the anticipation of a likely era of floods that we're going to see in, in coming years. Uh, they speak to, I think, fundamental human uh, fact. The fact that... that Human communities, I mean, human societies, human civilization are really fragile by definition. I mean, we often don't realize that because we've been lucky enough to live in years uh, where there's been no global war, where um, security um, felt better, also crime has gone down. But actually, that's in a way the exception in history. I mean, uh, throughout history, danger, threat, uh, death ultimately, negativity has been a constant component there. And this is coming back, and it has come back most evidently because with the coronavirus crisis, because the coronavirus crisis really imposed uh, on the public agenda the question of death, right? Uh, which neoliberalism is not a question that uh, that likes to, to talk about. Plus, climate change uh, has only reinforced that message. I don't know if you saw this famous uh, comic of this Canadian comic designer, where there are the, all these waves that are uh, right. uh, washing on, on on the coast. The first one is COVID, and yeah, there yeah, is yeah. climate change, and there is COVID-19, uh, sorry, biodiversity collapse, right? I mean, it, it really captures something about the spirit of the times, in a way. Yeah. Like the dominant mood there, the fact that people are ever more aware that uh, there are existential risks that need to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to come on to fear in just a second because there's plenty to talk about there. Um, but just to talk about control then, um, that the kind of third in that triumvirate of sovereignty, protection and control, which are the key terms of our age uh, in your book. So you describe, you break down control into three different notions and there's some good evocative sort of imagery around it. So mm. control as command, like the idea of a fist, mm. which sounds quite uh, oppressive. Mm. Uh, control as direction. And mm. there you use the imagery of a ship, which is something that you steer, the, the idea of the, you can control the direction of society, mm. uh, more of politics. And uh, control as autonomy. So that's sort of mm. as an island. Mm-hmm. Um in all of that description, I think I can identify things in politics today which mm. fit those examples, right? And you can have a con- control as command. You can think of maybe, uh, I don't know, Viktor Orban's, uh, you know, mm. gutting the constitution and, and claiming more control. Um, direction. Um, I'm trying to think of an, of an example, but even even Biden's attempt to to steer mm. uh, to steer politics in a certain direction, or at least. 
prevent the worst from happening is some sense of, of a trying to seize control of events in a, in a very limited mm-hmm. sense. Um, yeah, this has more to do with, yeah, exactly, controlling events, in a way, controlling uh, ra- uh, chance and things that you mm-hmm. that are out of your control. Yeah. That's, yeah, and then, and then as autonomy, mm. uh, that would be at least a certain interpretation of Brexit, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, though we can come on to Brexit, I guess, in a, a bit more in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I, for me, what I found maybe what was missing from that, or maybe it's my misreading, mm-hmm. is a more active sense of control, you know, mm-hmm. of, of Republican freedom, uh, mm-hmm. of self-rule, right? Mm-hmm. Um and for me, that seems to me the the true sense of autonomy. And you do say this in the book, you know, that autonomy is not just being an island, I think, is, which is the maybe common understanding of the word autonomy. But that autonomy mm-hmm. does mean um, self, in some sense, relates to self-mastery, to, to, to kind of control in that kind of more positive sense. Um, so I, I wonder if maybe you could comment on that, first of all. <laughs> yes, I think the, yeah, perhaps the most evident yeah. one... Uh... Sorry, I, I, just to clarify, actually, because... That is something. Do you do you think that is not important, or do you think that's something that isn't so present in contemporary politics? And so, just at a descriptive level, that's something that's not uh, that's not present. No, I think that that is important, and in a way, one of the messages of the book is that a socialist politics needs to be a republican politics, in the sense that mm-hmm. if a socialist agenda, a socialist agenda, has to be pursued. It can only be pursued within a republic. I mean, within a framework, within a, a republic, in a sense of a commonwealth that is able to self-govern and self-rule. Yeah. yeah. There's no uh, um, obviously is I don't believe in global democracy. I don't believe in global governance. I believe in international relations, international collaboration, international friendship. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the idea that you can uh, leapfrog and uh, um, right, go beyond the national state is something that has been demonstrated to, to be wrong and I, again and again. And um, I think with the idea of, of control as, as the island autonomy is something that obviously the Brexit uh, event brought very much into the, the public consciousness. There were some famous kind of remainders posters, uh, no man is an island, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and, and the quip I use in the book is that, in a way, all countries are islands. This is it's a good repost. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> because it's one of the fundamental effects of the nation state, or the nation state, to isolate the nation from the rest. This is something that Pulanza said. So Pulanza said that the two fundamental effects of the state are individualization and isolation of the national state unit, right? the idea of different social units. Now, for a long time, postmodern sociology, thinking about Ulrich Beck, they were all about this idea of uh, overcoming the unit idea of sociology, right? Overcoming this idea of units with boundaries. Yeah. Right? Um, but that as uh, a, uh, it, it has created many problems. It's precisely at the root of the, of the feeling of lack of political control. Yeah. Right? When you break these social units, and their, their internal solidarity. And secondly, we have also seen the stubbornness of these social units right, in, yeah. in, in the long term and how they, they become important when, when it comes to, to crisis. And it's interesting because that sort of postmodern delusion that there are no boundaries, that we live in a global society and so on, uh, you don't find much theoretical representation of that or and you don't find I don't think you find that much political discourse which mm-hmm. which really affirms that I mean they, you know there's references to the international community which we mm-hmm. all know means the interests of the United States or of, of rich countries um, 
but it we seem to have moved beyond at least that high point of globalization you know which which completely um relegates the nation state mm. at the same time though i think like in popular consciousness especially for younger people mm. because of the internet more than anything and social media there is a sense of a blurring of the boundaries of what a national culture might be and that doesn't need to be mm. a conception of a national culture which is parochial or closed off to the world or anything like that or, or reactionary in any way but just that it relates to that culture is a dialogue with a country's dialogue with itself about where it wants to go whatever good stuff right <laughs> but there seems to be i think there seems to be a remnant of that sort of globalist ideal in the in the minds of a lot of people today because of the internet the idea that we live sort of in some global space that we that uh, place doesn't matter so yeah. Yeah, that is true. There, there is a tension. I think it is probably going to be a continuing tension between a globalism that has become ever more kind of almost an hyper globalism. I mean, to me, the most clearest example was the European was the football super league. Yeah, like this idea of just let just let's create something outside of these stupid national leagues. Yet it always engenders then this reaction from below saying, "No, oh, what is sec? You don't fuck with us. Yeah. I mean, we want to keep it close to us because if it goes away, we lose any control precisely. Yeah. I mean, once it is disanchored from the territory, we uh, ordinary people, like fans in that case, we lose any pressure point that we can use to assert our interests yeah. fundamentally. Um, but something that struck me, the great thing for me of writing this book was that it gave me the opportunity to read a lot of political theory and political philosophy I hadn't read properly. And that uh, taught me that many ideas that liberals these days are proposing are actually in contradiction with uh, the proper liberal theories of the past. I mean, yeah. For example, Kant, right? I mean, the idea of uh, universal peace and the idea of uh, uh, an overcoming of uh, conflicts. Right? I mean, is an idea that many people have associated with this global democracy, uh, right, uh, or overcoming of the national state. Right? So you go and, and read Immanuel Kant on, on that, and you may think Kant will argue that we need global democracy. Mm. Nothing farther from Kant. When Kant is talking about peace, and he is uh, the, the greatest... Uh, worry for him is what he calls world government because what he says is that world government is dangerous because being a global government therefore an gargantuan government it would be much more dangerous it would have enormous means of destruction mm. at its disposal it wouldn't have any boundary to contain it in right yeah to stop it from being destructive secondly that centripetal force, imagine a force of gravity in a kind of like solar system, would automatically create a repulsive force at the periphery. As uh, peripheral countries and regions don't like the settlement and therefore they, they break off. And this would only create conflict, which was uh, precisely the problem that world government would be instituted to solve in the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good example, I think, of uh, yeah the way that postmodern liberalism and kind of what has been called kind of globalist ideology whether that's a good term or not uh in some ways um it's quite distant it, it is yeah yeah it, it, i mean i think we miss yeah. out the i think that's a good way to put it because we miss out mm. precisely how extreme it is mm. because it's been the common sense of the day for at least 20 years yeah, because, I mean, liberals in the past, I mean, if talking about Kant or talking about Hannah Arendt, these are liberal thinkers. I mean, they were far wiser than what these days are called liberals. I mean, and they were, by the way, often kind of imbued with civic republican ideas as well. Yeah. In a sense, they were for freedom, and but they 
accepted that you need a political community, right? You need boundaries and that the universal rights of men, of people, are not in contradiction, but are actually realized to the right of the citizens yeah. of a specific country. Yeah, absolutely. But these days, neoliberals and liberals have completely uh, abandoned this wisdom. Yeah, which is the ideology of human rights, which mm. uh, rights are things which are not fought for and guaranteed by powers, but mm. uh, just exist somehow uh, in the ether and ultimately yeah. have to be backed up by the United States. So that's who you have to appeal to uh, if you want your <laughs> rights guaranteed. Otherwise, you're screwed. So mm. that's not good. I want to talk about the other, the flip side of control mm. before we mm. move on to talk about fear, um, which is... There's control in the talk, in the notion that we were talking about in terms of self-rule, about seizing control, taking back control, to use the Brexit slogan. Uh, but there's the other side of skepticism towards mm-hmm. state control, um, which is a sort of perhaps a libertarian stance or at any rate a very skeptical stance. Because I think even if you look at some of the conspiracy theories, they're not necessarily libertarian, but there's a, a perhaps even a sort of paranoid disposition with regard to state power and not just state power but the kind of uh, all its accoutrements and and institutional supports whether it's the media the judiciary etc etc um you you know that skepticism towards state control has drawn very different people together right so you have like alt-right and the anti-authoritarian left and that's something that's emerging which is quite hard to get a Mm. grasp on because on the one hand it's it's good that the people are revolting against quite authoritarian impositions. Mm. At the same time, it seems very much trapped in something which you're critical of in the book mm. and something that I'm critical of uh, myself as well, which is the anti-authoritarian critique of top-down control that's existed since the 1960s. This mm. sort of denunciation of anything to do with the, the state as mm. necessarily oppressive um, and, a, and a kind of a jealous guarding of I guess, sort of individual sovereignty at the expense of any Mm -hmm. collectivity, any normative idea of what society should be like. So how do you understand this? What seems to be kind of an emerging emerging polarization which isn't captured by left versus right, I think. That is interesting indeed. I mean, if I think about my social media timeline, like, I mean, some of the people that uh, uh, before the pandemic were taking the most, uh, say, sovereignist, Kind of nationalist or quasi nationalist lines, uh, including people like supporting Brexit or being very critical of the euro. I mean, I was actually very surprised to see how many of them then embraced uh, these libertarian uh, criticism of lockdown, of masks, uh, of vaccination. Um, I mean, that was the point I think was made by journalists. Uh, this point was made by journalists of the New- of the Financial Times that the big teaching of, of the pandemic was that. Trump, for example, was this problem was not that he was an authoritarian. This problem was that he was a libertarian. Mm. <laughs> that actually, um, libertarianism was far more prominent, at least when it comes to kind of domestic policy or to economic policy. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's a weird uh, mix and match in a way, right? In a sense, is some degree of authoritarianism, in a sense, recuperation of state authority at, at state level. But then just to allow people to uh, maintain self-control or proprietarian control right, within the country, in a sort of kind of Darwinist uh, fight of uh, all against all. Um, so indeed, I mean, th- there was something that was quite remarkable to see this, uh, this struggle between authoritarians and libertarians, if you want to put it like that, or 
or people who think that control should be collective and people that think that control should be fundamentally individual. Yeah, yeah. though I mean, I guess to, to complicate that picture, the way I've characterized it is that the pandemic, the battle lines over the pandemic has been between anti-social collectivists, mm. the effectively total pro-lockdown people, mm. and anti-social libertarians. Mm. And there's no real true social vision because mm. one is a uh, in the name of collective sacrifice, but where everyone's atomized, you're not allowed to see your friends, you're not mm. allowed to uh, decide for yourself how to manage public spaces um, and how to behave mm. in them. Uh so it's quite an antisocial vision. And then the sort of libertarian response, which also kind of seems to suggest the state should just do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that it's not a realm for the state to be involved in, which I think is also wrong because it surely protecting people in a pandemic is one of the core <laughs> core responsibilities of a state. Yeah, I mean, some of these issues have been fetishized. And I think also the left has made mistakes there uh, in a way. I mean, thinking that the lockdown was the only solution or almost attributing kind of salvific power to, to the lockdown, uh, where ultimately, I would say, the, the policymakers in the West jumped the gun a bit in a sense that if you wanted, I think initially it would have been the right idea to pursue a kind of proper hard lockdown in, in order then to open up um, the country, uh, but then closing external borders or subjecting people to quarantines, right, as they did in China, for example, yeah. that's the way they manage uh, the pandemic, uh, despite not having the, the same vaccination rates that, that, that we're having here. But obviously, once you enter these uh, in-between measures, these, uh, I'll do a bit of that, but I cannot do more than that. Otherwise, public opinion will completely massacre me. Uh, obviously, <laughs> that solution by now is already anachronistic. Um, but I, th- I think you do see the two phases of control in all of this, right? Because there is an element... Uh, of to control from global for to, from forces, but also to reject the, the control imposed on people, uh, while at the same time all the kind of uh, liberal center being generally hardcore advocates of of lockdown and wanting mm. to impose control. Um, so we're gonna park that discussion now. Many, but many I think people dislike bureaucracy. Well, yeah, exactly, and and uh, th- they want bureaucracy for other people, but not for them, which I think is what a lot of the polls attest to. Um, that you know they want lockdown, but then they don't behave, they don't follow them. So, um, but anyway, just to say that I think that's the way that you've conceptualized it is really interesting in the book, and um, might as well say this now. I'll say it at the end again, but listeners should pick up a, a copy of the Great Recoil when it comes out. Uh, let's turn to animals because everyone likes animals. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, pangolins, or pangolins, I should have looked up how to pronounce it properly, before this, and uh, lobsters, right? So these it's are the two... It's the most beautiful animal. I, the, the, I'll is it? Pronunciation. Yeah, okay. It's Pangolin. a very endearing animal. It is, I think. It is. Um, but, you know, it doesn't fight, so it's, it lacks that sort of dynamism. And actually, that's what mm-hmm. I want to get to. Hey, Alex here. You've reached the end of the free show. If you want to hear the last part of our interview with Paulo Gabaldo, as well as a discussion between myself, George, and Phil, discussing what we've learned in the interview, unpicking a little bit further these questions about the politics of fear, about whether we really are moving to a protective state, about whether control is the means of protection or vice versa, uh, and further questions beyond that, and the big one, of course, about whether we are moving beyond neoliberalism and what that will look like, 
That is over for subscribers only on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, please do. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast, and that second part is out now. Hope to see you there. Bye-bye.